Bill is a failed skydiver and a bear sometimes he runs. Ben's always traveling, an occasional beach bum. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's PHP Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, PHP Town Hall. Ben created Eye on Off, he's a comic book fanatic. Phil made Pyro CMS, he's probably in a kayak. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's PHP. Hello, welcome to episode 40 of the PHP Town Hall. Tonight you have myself, Ben Edmonds, along with Phil Sturgeon, shoving pizza in his face, and we're joined by Anthony Ferrara once again. Hello! Anthony, give a quick intro to who the fuck you are for those that haven't seen your previous episodes. If you don't know who I am, go look it up, go watch all the old PHP Town Hall episodes. You'll figure it out really quite nicely. Who are you on Twitter, by the way? How about that? I am at I-R-C-M-A-X-E-L-L, and uh, I'll I'll edit my little tagline down here for that. Um, I I blog on a whole bunch of stuff. I do security, PHP internals, uh, object-oriented design, and I work for Google. I'm a developer advocate. And something that a lot of people don't know about Anthony is that he's sat right there. Hello. Anthony actually lives on Phil's couch. Um, Yeah. I reject that reality. Things went downhill at Google, and he's had to move out, and now he's living on my sofa. Along with, like, everyone else. <laughs> how, was, how was your little trip to my sofa, Ben? Uh, your sofa was pretty nice, actually. I was supposed to sleep in the beanbag, but I chose yeah. the sofa instead because I'm an asshole. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I had another friend living on my sofa. I run a hostel now, <laughs> being a web developer. All right, All right, let's get on with the show here. Oh, yeah, this time we've actually prepared questions because we are prepared people. Um, and the first one is, uh, what do we got? So, uh, yeah, Anthony, uh, you quit PHP internals uh, a while ago, calling it a toxic kindergarten. Uh, but now you are back to do an RFC, or you've now done the RFC. Um, what brought you back, and will you be staying? So, yeah, this is a complex topic, but I'll make it really, really short. Um, I came back because I saw a proposal that I thought was good, got railroaded out um, through some unfair tactics and something else, so I decided to say, no, I'm going to pick this up and run with it and hopefully get it in. I got it in. Um, as far as whether I'm going to stay or not, uh, I'll decide that soon. Um, depends on how things change internally. Uh, one thing I really like this time around is the community in general really seems to be stepping up um, and calling out BS when they see it. and they, It seems like they want reform in general, which I think is absolutely fantastic. So there's a chance. Um, I think part of the, the community stepping up, so part of the differences I've noticed is that um, all new RFCs seem to get put on, um, on Reddit very quickly. Now, Reddit might not be you know, a, a source of wonderful conversation at all times, but um, there are some interesting talks that happen on there, and that's why I continue to stick through all the bullshit. It gives me something fun to tweet about, but um, yeah, I, I think people are showing like a lot more attention and focus and interest on the RFCs and the internal processes, so that when someone says something that's clearly fucking ludicrous, then that goes all over the internet and they kind of, you know, it, it's, it's noticed instead of just being some like hidden mailing list that people can't really access, you know? 
Yeah, and for as negative as Reddit can be from time to time, I think it's been a real positive driving force in the entire uh, seven concept and has given a lot of visibility, like you said, into proposals that would otherwise be completely obscure. All right, so um, for those that don't know, you came back for the Scaler Type Hints, which um, we previously had Andrea on the show to talk about, and Andrea since quit, and uh, I'm sure she's much happier now. But So you stepped up, and you said you were going to help push through a version. What, uh, why did you do that? What are Scaler Type Hints? Give us like a TLDR of that for those that don't know. Well, actually, at first there's a really quick joke in there. How many PHP devs does it take to get through, get a scalar type pending proposal through? Well, it takes one to quit and one to come back. Um, so what are scalar type ends? So PHP has a whole bunch of types. We, we're familiar with objects and arrays, and we also have these other types that we collectively lump up together and call scalar. So they're integers, they're floating point values, they're strings, uh, booleans, etc. Actually, just those four. So what scalar types, type hinting does is it allows you to tell, say that a function argument is going to be a specific scalar and require that specifically. Um, this is awesome because we can type hint against objects right now in PHP 5 and arrays. So you can t say this function, this argument has to be an array or this function has to be an instance of some class. But up until 7, we couldn't do that for the scalar type. So we couldn't say this argument has to be an integer. Um, now with this proposal going through, that means we can actually do that. Uh, that's really as simple as I can make it. Uh, random pause. Oh, Phil was about to say something. <laughs> uh, um, so what changes have you made to the, to the scalar type pins patch uh, since you took it over from Andrea? So there have really been just a couple really minor tweaks. Uh, one was the acceptance of float for, I'm sorry, integer for float type hints in strict mode. So Andrea's proposal and my proposal have two modes. You have the default mode, which will cast. So you can have a string with a value of 12, for example, and when you pass that to something expecting an integer, you get 12 on the other side. Great. We can also flip on a switch and say, I want to use strict types, which would then cause an error there. It would force you to match types when you pass arguments. So in strict mode, I added the ability to pass an integer where you expect to float. So that it's called type widening. It's something that Java does. It's something that um, a number of other languages do. And, and it's really handy because often you want to pass a variable. And in PHP, certain operations like division and multiplication give you different types back. So this way, you can pass an integer to something that expects a float like number format without having to go ahead and cast, which is one of the big issues that was raised on Andrea's original proposal uh, by people like Rasmus. So that change, and then the second one was around the declare syntax for how you turn on strict mode. In Andrea's original proposal, you could define it anywhere in a file. You could turn it on and off multiple times throughout the file. You could do weird things like use a funky block mode and only have a specific chunk be strict, but the rest of the file be uh, non-strict. And basically, we said none of that malarkey. It has to be the first directive in the file, and that's it. The file is one type, and that's the end of the story. Um, I did look into supporting block mode at one point so that people could merge files together like uh, from a framework. 
but it turns out that there are some pretty severe technical limitations around that that make it a hell of a lot harder of a problem than it seems on the surface. So really, it was just two really minor tweaks. And in fact, at the top of the RFC is literally um, a block of check that says, changes from Andrea's original proposal. And that's it. We have to get a bit better at this so <laughs> we can edit the chunks out. We're not used to actually having questions. We usually just kind of talk. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, there's one that just got added, uh, a question that just got asked by um, somebody with another complicated name. Uh, George Gonzalez, I'm assuming, asks, uh, what's the story with the numeric type hint for both integers and floats? Is that still a thing? So not for 7. Okay. We'll come back to that concept at the end, but not for 7. Cool. There you go. That was nice and easy. Um, the other one, uh, so, yeah, a question I had was, uh, there's been a lot of shit talking on low PHP, funnily enough, which, um, uh, and they've been complaining about the, the scalar type hinting uh, dual mode kind of being optional. And they're saying that um, if, if the strictness is optional, then it is by definition not strict. Uh, I wonder what you'd have to say to that. So, it's really kind of interesting because you have the school of thought that a language should have one mode and one type system. And in an ideal world, if we're designing a new language from scratch, absolutely, you define one type system, you make it complete, and that's the end of the story. The problem is that's not what we're doing here. We're working on a language that's been around for 20 plus years that powers something along the lines of 80% of the internet if you believe certain statistics. Backwards compatibility and not breaking existing code is one of the most important things that we have to keep in mind as we develop new uh, uh, new features. So this, the dual mode system allows people to actually use strict and actually develop specific files or modules or packages um, using a strict mode giving them what they want while still not breaking existing code and letting people work the PHP way. Um, a side note to that is the community itself is actually really divided on how they use P uh, types in general in the sense that you have a lot of people who write PHP 4 style code, procedural code, without any types at all, and that's fine. Like, we shouldn't be discouraging that. That's one absolutely valid way of doing things. Um, and, and they shouldn't have to suffer because they don't want to do something strictly. On the other hand, we have a lot of people who are writing OO code that's incredibly strict, and they should be able to make their type strict as well. Why should they have not have to, why should they not have the ability to use strict primitives if they want to? So having the dual approach mode does both at the same time. It solves the backwards compatibility problem of introducing a stricter mode type system, but it also allows people the flexibility because it's such a large community and there's so many different types of users. Um, it gives people the choice. And one of the really interesting things here is we're not actually the first language to do this. JavaScript has done this with UseStrict, which changes some of the semantics of the engine. Um, but they're doing it again even deeper with a new strict mode that's actually going uh, uh, up for an ECMA standard to actually make this a full-blown strict type system where you can't modify classes after they're constructed, you can't do a whole bunch of this other stuff because of the exact same reasons that PHP is adding this mode. Um, it's something that a lot of other system, a lot of other programming languages have found incredibly useful. So I think it's a little bit short-sighted to say, ha ha ha, two modes, they're idiots. It's like, 
realize the problem that's trying to be solved, realize the scale of it, and realize that this solution actually has merit. Yeah, in fact, I think that's a fairly important thing. Is um, in with PHP, like language uh, version updates, version uptake of new versions has always been fairly slow. Like uh, four to five was uh, absolute ball ache. It was. It took a really long time for that to to get, gain traction. Things like Go PHP five had to be, you know, a whole movement was created just to do that. Um, so if you imagine uh, PHP seven, just everything's strict now, um, and you're like you're passing uh, a strict, you know, a, a integer, a numeric string into a field that expects an integer and it breaks, like your entire application is going to be fucked. You're going to have to start with every single function, go through every line of code and make sure this stuff works and that would just be horrible. <laughs> It'd be really bad. So one of the good things about the, the kind of default weak solution is that you can keep on using PHP in pretty much the same way and you can keep on working with um, third-party code and composer packages that have got these type hints enabled unless you turn it on then you're all still good and you won't have a problem of upgrading. And then the second you're kind of ready to, to start, maybe you you know do a little bit of work with another language and notice they have stricter types and you want to try and do some of that yourself, or you find some bug that's because of the automatic conversion, then you can turn that shit on and you can start trying to play around with that stuff. But I feel like just forcing strictness on the entire PHP community in a major version, the only thing that's going to do is make a division of, of usage that's like worse than the whole Python 2, Python 3 situation, right? <laughs> no one has yes. something. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so back to back to them questions. Uh, we've actually got loads of questions today. I think it's having Anthony on the show has got people a little bit excited, and because I actually announced the uh, the event beforehand instead of just twenty minutes before. Give so. people more than like a two minute second. <laughs> <laughs> I very rarely know what I'm doing, let alone anything else. So. You got the time zone right this time, are you? Well, I called it EST, and it's technically EDT, but whatever. That's fucking close enough for me. Uh, <laughs> so. What do you need to do to make sure that your code will work with PHP 7? Um, apparently, Composer broke because they have a uh, class called String. It's namespace, but they have a class called String, and obviously that's busted now that String is a scalar type in instead. So, what do people do? Yeah, so the four primitives, bool, uh, sorry, bool, int, float, and String are now reserved. You can't even declare them inside of a namespace because of potential ambiguity in there. Um, that's the big one. There are obviously the other normal ones with seven. They're all the normal ones with seven, for example. The, there are a couple new exceptions that were introduced, etc. But the, um, the big one is that type name because a fair number of libraries have a class name string in them, specifically Drupal's one. Um, there's a JSON schema package that Composer depends upon. So really, it's just about renaming a couple classes, and everything should be fine, and everyone should be fine. I think everyone's pretty much just renaming them, renaming them to str, right? <laughs> or like string util package, and then you're done. Yeah. Although probably not util, because I hate it when they... It's a utilities class. It's full of stuff, and it does things. That was just added to a package that I maintained today, so... Ah, well, what I'm basically saying is fuck you. Um... Ben, grab a question off this list. Yeah, all right. So hey, next up is uh, if someone wants to give scalar type hints a try, what would they do to do that? Is there a, a current version out with it that they could try out, or do they need to compile? So it was actually committed today, um, which means that it's going to be out on the normal nightly builds that come out on download.php. Sorry, downloads.php.net. Um, I believe we do do daily builds. 
I probably should have researched this beforehand. Um, basically, it's in Master as of tonight. So anything that does nightly builds will have it from tonight on. Um, and if not, you can actually download it from source and play with Master directly from GitHub. There's instructions for how to do that on php.net directly. Uh, also, Rasmus has got a dev box, which uh, is a vagrant build situation, so you can use that. And Travis currently supports, um, I think it's nightly builds, or they like update it fairly regularly. But you can just whack 7.0 in your Travis build file, and it will, it will check your code works there too, which is nice. All right, next up, uh, why am I getting a fatal error instead of the recoverable error for type mismatches, and why yeah. not an exception? So this is actually an interesting one that was just brought up on Reddit. Someone actually compiled and is playing with it, and they ran into this issue. So engine exceptions was recently accepted into 7, which basically means that what used to be recoverable errors and some fatal errors are now exceptions. Um, but to keep some sanity, the, one of the details around how it did that is if it's uncaught, it converts it into a fatal error. So if you don't have a catch block designed to catch it, it looks like a fatal error. It is an exception by default. Um, you just have to type int on it. All type failures are using currently the type exception class, which is a new class that was introduced. Um, that extends engine exception, which then extends this new root exception class, class base exception. And does that handle non-scalers as well? Is it the same exception? Any type-related error, so missing arguments, even class mismatches, are all going to come through as a type exception. Cool. Okay. Both for internal functions and uh, user land functions as well. Okay. Uh, I've got a question from Phil Sturgeon for Anthony, and it's, uh, is my turtle the cutest turtle you've ever met? I haven't met many turtles, so that's not too fair, but it is damn cute. <laughs> that's important, as long as you like the little fella. We'll have to get him on the show at some point. You could just kind of turn your... Turn your camera. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there it is. Everyone meets Stouffer. Have a little look. Let's, let's go have a look. Sturgeon. I think I'm plugged in. Oh, I am. I am plugged in. Hang on. Let's have a little look at this fella. Now, I'm not sure if you can see him. No, we see him. Got him? There we go. He, he gets around a bit. He's pretty quick. Has he eaten any of the fish yet? No, the goddamn fish is still here. But look, I can, I can feed him, like, little pellets, and then he likes those. But that fish is still there. I'm having to feed this little bloody fish, and that fish was meant to be food for my turtle. So having to feed my pet food is a bit of a pain in the backside. Uh, not entirely sure why we had that little break there. I just wanted to, to, want to get Stouford on the show. He's been in the background a few times. He wanted a little bit of limelight, so let's get him in there. Uh, All right, Anthony. Uh, what's the benefits of type hints over other options like duck typing? Both are 100% valid. Both are useful. Um, adding types makes it so that you can make your code a little bit more robust so that you can test it better and that you can ensure that the contracts that you're providing to the real world um, are enforced. So if you want an integer, declare it as an integer so that way it doesn't matter what else other people are doing. You're guaranteed it's an integer inside your, uh, your function. The reason that's actually kind of important is there are a number of edge cases inside of PHP where the type actually does matter. So a lot of people say, well, if the web is a string, therefore a string should work. But uh, we can point to at least half a dozen, if not more, cases internally in the engine and internally in the language 
where the internal type, so the difference between a string, an integer, or a float, actually matters, and it matters quite significantly in some cases. The difference in behavior can be quite significant. Uh, there was something that I was listening to Full Stack Radio uh, podcast, which is a pretty good podcast. They had um, they had DHH on there the uh, episode before, and that was an awesome awesome talk from someone who I originally thought sucked, and it turns out he's he's pretty cool. Um, the episode afterwards, they were talking about um, they were talking about typing and type hinting in general, and uh, talking about it specifically in PHP versus other languages. But one of the things that they thought was pretty pretty lollable was. Uh, they find it a bit strange that the people in the PHP community have started to pick up this new fascination with um, with with type hints, like it will fix all bugs. And I don't think anyone's suggesting it will fix all your bugs, but it it does help limit some. But what they're saying pretty much is that why would you need to have an error saying you just tried to put a string into this argument and it it has to be something else? Because theoretically, if you're putting the wrong type in there, you should get an error from the code. And if you're putting the right type in there, then you or if you're putting like anything acceptable in general, then it should just carry on working, right? What do you say to, to that kind of stuff about like you need that early error or because the code should just still keep working? I would say that's a case of scale. Um, if you're working on a 100-line app, it makes zero difference. Typing is not going to benefit you at all. You can verify because you can keep the entire code base in your mind at any one point in time. It's not really going to benefit you. If you're working on a 20,000-line app, it's probably not going to benefit you that much because there's a pretty good chance you can know every corner of the code. When you're talking about 100,000 lines or a million lines or 10 million lines of code, when you're talking about a major open source project where you have literally hundreds if not thousands of developers having the ability to sit down and run a simple compile step that tells you, hey, wait a minute, you did something wrong here. This particular corner of the code was expecting something and you gave it something different. Stop, you broke something or you may have broke something is actually quite massive. Um, that's one of the prime reasons why Facebook developed Hack was because they're doing things at such a scale with number of developers and number of lines of code, they needed a way to actually verify that the types are correct in their language. Um, and I think that anybody who in this day and age in 2015 says that you don't need types on, on arguments is making an understatement. I mean, yes, for some small light code, it's really, really easy. You don't need type hints. Duck typing is fine. Trying to do it at a large-scale application breaks down quite quickly. And I think that's real, there's a fair bit of data to back that up, too. Yeah, that was kind of the idea I got when I was listening to their podcast. Um, I need to, like, log in reply or something, because I was actually meant to be on the episode. But uh, um, something, their, their point of view seemed to be pretty much, why would I need to, why do I need to worry about that? Uh, I've got my te my code is unit tested and uh, I know what I'm putting in there, so you know I know that I can throw stuff in there and my code will work and it's tested, so there's no problems. And we've got someone calling on the door and I'm not expecting anything. That's weird. Um, just ignore the beeping in the background. Actually, I'll have to go and get that. I'm sorry. All right. Ah, uh, the there joys you. of live editing. Yeah. Or live broadcasting now. I had sirens in my background as well. Let's move on to the next question. Is the current declare syntax sticking around, or are you going to switch to something like uStrict or another syntax? Um, I assume that was just a mistake, uh, but anyway. I think Joel may have had more to say. Or... <laughs> yes, so I was, uh, I'll start again. Shorter version this time. Uh, so on the podcast, their, their point of view seemed to be pretty much, um, I know what arguments I'm putting in there. I've unit tested this, so if I put some bad stuff in there, it will error. Um, 
and and you know I, I I the developer should be trusted to to know how to use the the method or whatever, and I think that works to a point when it's just you or when it's just you and a couple of very smart developers, but when you have a large team or you have some juniors that don't really know what they're doing, um, that can be a, another problem. They, and you also you also might not have it as well unit tested. Like a a beginner might not have any unit tests, and whilst type hints don't stop you needing unit tests, you do need much less. Uh, I've been working with Go, and I've I've been getting away with about 30% test coverage because if the, if the damn app compiles, then that's already a, a pretty good start to knowing that, that most of the types being passed backwards and forwards are, are what you expect. And if you have the right flow of data, then you can be fairly confident about some of the way the other stuff works. What do you think about that, Anthony? Uh, you said one thing there that I, dis- that I think is a dangerous assertion, which is that um, having types means that you can have fewer unit tests and I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, it definitely removes the need for a class of unit tests, um, but what it really reduces is the need for the higher level tests, your system integration tests. Having a robust type system definitely makes that a lot easier um, because you know that everything got plugged together correctly without actually having to execute it. With that said, end-to-end unit test, or end-to-end integration test or systems test still is incredibly important. So I definitely don't know if uh, overall coverage is necessarily reduced. Yeah, it's more just an extra layer of security or peace of mind. Exactly. It definitely removes the need for a certain caliber of tests. Yeah. Whether that means reduced coverage or not, I I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but well, that's fair enough. It um I, I realized that I was trying to write tests in Go that I, I I was trying to write kind of the same sort of tests that I'd write in PHP. And with PHP I I'm sitting there checking like if I throw a string at it, what does it do? If I throw this at it, what does it do? Um if uh when I get the results back, are they an array of things that I expect? Um and those sort of tests were just completely pointless because if the fucking thing compiles, then you know it's it's off to a good start. So um, it's it's been quite interesting. I, I've I've been thinking about types a lot recently because uh, at work I'm using Rails and I've got like two windows and there's usually Go on one of them and then Ruby on the other and the two things are completely different. And whenever you talk to a Ruby developer about types, they're always of the of the of the ilk that just whatever. Let's duct type it. Let's throw it in there. Like if it's got a if it responds to this method, then it's probably fine and we'll just throw stuff in there and we can assume that it takes the arguments and. Um, and then on the other side, you've got Go, which unless every single thing is exactly the, the, the type-hinted arguments and the return types, unless everything completely matches up, you won't even be able to start your app. Um, well, there's a definitely a fine line there, though, because Go has interfaces which kind of act ducky in the sense that if an interface requires one or two particular methods, if you have those methods on it, okay, we assume that that's fine. So Go's interfaces and the structural typing that Go uses really is a form of duct typing. It's just a form of formal duct typing, not implicit duct typing that Ruby does. Meaning it's not the, it's not checked at runtime, it's actually checked at compile time. That's pretty fancy. Um, I, I seem to remember a while ago, speaking of duct typing, that you were working on some, uh, some RFC that would kind of had duct typing support. Uh, like, was it interfaces, or what, what was it you were doing? Structural typing. Okay. You know, I, I worked on that a while ago, came up with the concept. It, it met with a lot of initial resistance, um, so I withdrew the proposal, and when I left, everything was fine. And then all of a sudden, a lot of people in the community started to realize, hey, wait a minute, there's some actually pretty good ideas behind that. For example, 
um, like Zen Framework and the Symphony guys, and specifically the the Fig group. Um, they realized that hey, this could benefit quite a bit if we had something like this. Does that mean that what I was working on then was the right thing? No, but it means something along those lines, some form of a structural type or a protocol type or something could be interesting, and that may be something to look forward to for uh, eight or to talk about for eight. I'm really bad at these uh, these gaps here. Hang on. Uh, yeah, so on on moving away from uh, scalar type ints because I feel like uh, we've already dedicated like two episodes to it, so <laughs> uh, we can get onto some more kind of general questions. Yeah, um, so we actually had a question in the Q and A uh, related to RFC process in general. So, um, do you think that the RFCs would benefit from a public straw poll, which is basically like a community poll that doesn't have direct um, direct action on the RFC, but could be used as like a gauge? for those voting on whether or not the community wants it? Uh, so I have a couple really, really mixed and really probably controversial issues with that. Um, well, another been controversial. Well, I mean, so on one hand, do users really know what they need? Yes, they know what they want. Do they know what they need? And that's kind of one of the concepts behind a language design is you design what they need as as opposed to, like I think Phil had said at one point, if you just give users what they're asking for, eventually you wind up with a hodgepodge. And at some point you need to come in and make an intelligent decision and make decisions for users instead of just responding. Um, so on that side, I think a straw poll could be dangerous. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's really important for concept concepts. So if, for example, uh, annotations is a big one, Annotations a lot of the community wants, a lot of people internally didn't want them historically, and something like that where a straw poll on the concept to say, hey, community, do you want annotation support in some way, shape, or form? I think that could be really, really big to show where there's some kind of a disconnect. But once you get down to specific details, I think that gets a little bit dangerous. Yeah, one thing uh, I think with the community polls, um, well, I've done it again. Uh, I click unmute and then I completely forget what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's awesome. I haven't got a clue. Uh, yeah, Ben? Um, so can we write down Anthony Ferrara says users are dumb? Because that's basically... <laughs> uh, I remember what I was going to say. So one thing I've noticed, like I've been paying close attention to internals and kind of uh, uh, been getting involved in a few conversations and I've been polite in a few of them. Um, but I, I just feel like, you know, when in Rome, be a dickhead. But, um, damn it, I forgot what I was saying again. <laughs> I'm on meth. It's all the meth I've been doing. Are you okay? No, I don't think I am. Phil has been drinking, so he should be okay by this point. <laughs> I really, I don't know what's happening. You should probably drink a little more so the shakes go away. <laughs> I've had this nervous twitch in my left eye um, for the last couple of weeks. I think it's because I've been on internals. Uh, <laughs> I really don't know what's happening to me. Uh, yeah, no, the, the one thing that will be useful is that in internals you constantly see people saying, well, most PHP developers want this, or most PHP developers do things this way, and it's something that comes up all the damn time. Like in the same conversation I saw five different people using it to back up completely like polar opposite arguments. Um, so all these people are just running around saying most PHP developers want this without ever actually uh, asking the community, or they might 
tweet and say, what do you think? And then, funnily enough, the people that follow them on Twitter feel roughly the same way about certain things, and that backs up their opinion that they're right about everything. So um, I, while I'm, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of the community poll thing, I think the community should get a say. I don't think the community sh should necessarily dictate um, because at the end of the day, the people on internals are the ones that are actually having to implement these features after at, at the end of it. So it, it's a really fine line, but I do think even just an unofficial, like a third-party website, being able to poll people's views on certain RFCs just so that people don't say, all people want this, when the poll clearly says that people don't want this, right? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Uh, why, why, why do you have the horns, man? What's, what's going on? I don't want you being horny in my apartment. It's not... <laughs> for, <laughs> for, for those of you watching at home on black and white television, um, you ever hear that quote? It's, a, it's an old one from the... Uh, some, uh, back in the days when the television was black and white, or when, when colour television just came out, there was a BBC sports reporter, and uh, he was saying, for those of you watching at home in black and white, Arsenal are the ones playing in red. Just fucking useless. Uh, on to the next question. We've got a whole bunch of these things here. So I don't know what happened, but I came back to a really shitty joke. Well, fuck you, Ben. Fuck you. <laughs> yes, is... yes, you did. I think more of this whiskey might make me help, uh, help make me feel better. But I've been having trouble with words and thinking. And yeah, I think you need more whiskey. Let's... Yeah. Okay. With more, and you're better than this. <laughs> I really, I'm not. Not okay today. So do you want to get empty the rest of the episode, and then I'll just sit in the corner and drink more? <laughs> All right. What uh, what next question do we have? Uh, is Anthony? Are you involved in PHPNG? I'm not sure why this question's here. Not really. I'm aware of it, but I mean, feel free to ask it. But all right, just make some shit up because that's what we do. Oh, a few people have been calling uh, PHPNG a, a jet. For PHP, and then there's other stuff like uh, Zend has a tool for JIT. This question's really phrased horribly. I'm trying to rephrase it as I read it. Uh, will PHP be getting anything like a JIT in the master branch, or uh, will HHVM be the only option for that? So, for those of you who don't know, a JIT is known as a just-in-time compiler. Um, normally like C and other old languages like that, and things like Go use what's known as a head-of-time compiler. You have a dedicated compile step where you sit down and type, you know, compile or make or whatever the, the word of the day is uh, for the tool to actually compile and turn it into machine code. A just-in-time compiler, on the other hand, does that. Um, it converts it to machine code right before it executes it. So typically right when you actually make a function call, um, that's when it'll actually compile to machine code, and then every further function call would execute machine code, which is a heck of a lot faster. Um, PHPNG, meaning what's going into 7, is not a JIT. It has nothing to do with JIT. It's a massive optimization of memory. Um, it turns out PHP 5, like something on the order of 35 to 40% of the runtime, is spent doing memory management. So PHPNG in 7 was a massive experiment around that to optimize the memory profiles, which gains like 30 to 40% improvement, which is just downright remarkable. Um, now, the JIT comes into play because Zend open-sourced a couple weeks ago. They're a JIT that they were working on as an experiment as a proof of concept. Uh, proof of concept. 
Uh, it's part of Opcache. It extends Opcache and adds a just-in-time compiler into PHP. Now, it's it's definitely a work in progress, and yes, it is a real JIT. Um, the, the difference and the issue that I have with it is the particular implementation, the way it does it, nobody else does it that way. Um, basically, they use LLVM to compile all the PHP into LLVM bytecode at the beginning of a request when you compile the file, and then use LLVM to actually run PHP and LLVM to do the JIT comp compilation. Um, it works. Nobody really does that because LLVM is probably one of the slower compilers out there. It generates fantastic code at the end, but it's really, really slow to compile. Um, in comparison, JITFoo, oh, sorry, LibJIT, what we worked with with Recky, what Joe and I worked on, is on the scale of 50 times faster than LLVM to actually compile. So typically what something like HHVM does is it runs it on its own internal virtual machine. It interprets it, if you will, for a bunch of times, and then it'll selectively pick a couple functions in a request to compile to native code. And it does that a block at a time, that compilation process, which it can do reasonably fast. When you try to do the entire program at one shot, it's really, really slow. And that's where Zend ran into the issue is, it could take five to ten minutes to compile something like WordPress ahead of time. So your first request or a request in a stale cache is five minutes long. That's a bit crazy. That's going to have a little bit of overhead. Um, do, you, do you think there's anyone out there that is working on a um, compiler where, in, in a classic way, like with C or with Go, haha, <laughs> fuck you, PHP douche, um, do you think there's anyone working Shots. <laughs> Is there anyone out there working on a compiler where you can kind of compile your code beforehand instead of a just-in-time approach? There are a couple of them. Uh, so PHPC was the original one. It came out quite a long time ago. It can compile most of PHP 5 or maybe all of PHP 5. It's since been, I think, unmaintained for the past year or two. Feel free to yell at me if that's the case, if it's not the case, rather, if it's still maintained. Um, I wrote a compiler in PHP called Recky, which does exactly that. It generates out C code from given PHP code. How did you make one? I didn't realize when I asked the question. That's a crazy coincidence. No. Wow, that's ah. crazy. Um, and so that's in terms of ahead-of-time compilers, and I'm definitely going to be working on one for seven, probably as an extension, well, no, not probably, definitely as an extension. I've got some ideas that I'm not going to let public right now, but there's definitely some cool stuff that's coming down the pike. Very cool. Um, all right, so Scary Type Hints is going to make it into PHP 7, correct? That's the way it's looking right now. It's committed into the code base, so yay. Are there any changes planned for type hinting for PHP 8, or would you guess that there's going to be any changes? Meaning to the original proposal? I, I don't think to so. To the current accepted proposal. Right. Um, I, I hesitate to say no because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Once we get this uh, the proposal out into the real world in the hands of real people, you know, you never know what they're going to find and what the community is going to want. They may use it and decide that strict mode is complete and absolute joke, and every single person out there says that, at which point, okay, we'll look at removing strict mode. Or the converse may happen, that everyone says, hey, wait, this weak mode is actually one of the worst things ever to do. We need to push for strict only in 8. Um, I have a feeling neither of those things are going to happen, and I have a feeling that both modes are going to stay for a long time. But it's 
it's possible. I mean, I wouldn't have pushed for it and advocated for it if I didn't think both were the right solution in the long term. Right. So. Okay. There's one cool question we got in from uh, from Mark Baker, who is the lovely chap that makes PHP Excel. Uh, good, good fella there. And he asks, why do some major RFCs like generator returns and delegation pass so easily when other things like uh, scalar type hints uh, raise such issues and turn into a massive flame war. He didn't mention the flame war part, but why, why was that one so mental compared to other RFCs? I think there's two fundamental reasons. One is kind of generic in that, well, scalers touch everybody and not everybody uses return type hinting, so therefore everybody has an opinion on scalers while the vast majority of people don't have opinions on return type hinting. People don't like things that touch everybody. That's usually a problem. Well, right. No, definitely. But the other one, and this is this kind of gets down to the definition of bike shed, is that I don't think a lot of people understand the use cases behind generator returns. In fact, I didn't for a long time until I sat down and talked with um, the author, actually, of it for quite a while to figure out why you needed a return rather than a yield. And it has to do with coroutines and things like that, but it's a very, very complicated proposal. So unless you sit down... Or, sorry, complicated use case. So unless you sit down and actually spend time to study how it's going to be used, it's not an easy thing to get. Where scalar type hints on the surface are actually a very trivial thing to get, so everybody has their own opinion on it because it's a really easy thing to pick apart. That's fair. Um, I didn't understand anything about the generator RFC, so I didn't talk about them. I didn't mention them in my PHP 7 features blog. I was just like, they are probably a cool thing. They're over my head. I'll just leave them to it. Um, but that sadly hasn't stopped everyone. Uh, some pr a problem you've had with the scalar type hints is that a large number of the core developers have been very verbally against the RFC whilst explicitly demonstrating they don't actually understand a word about the RFC. Like they didn't read it. Um, how, how do you deal with trying to push a feature through when people are fighting against you after not reading the RFC at all? So I think there's a couple issues there that you have to cover. One is when there's something literally that the RFC says that somebody starts arguing, you copy, you copy the URL to that thing in the RFC and you paste it in and say, okay, this is unproductive, stop it. Um, and that's happened quite a bit, and that's why when I took over Andrea's RFC, I added a gigantic discussion points. In fact, three-quarters of the RFC is specifically around discussion points and things that have been brought up. Um, for example, when I added the, the integer-to-float conversion, the type widening, someone complained, well, that's not lossless. So I actually wrote down a block of code, say, a block of text saying the problem that people are bringing up and the position that this proposal is taking and why it's taking it. And that, had, that did a phenomenal, phenomenal job at cutting down a lot of that style uh, conversation. Now, the other problem is people not reading past the first paragraph. And that's a lot deeper of a problem. And... Uh, I have no idea how the heck to solve that. Punching. Well, yes. <laughs> in an ideal world, you could punch and beat up people. Physical violence. Um, someone brought up actually a really interesting idea, which was have people prove by, by taking a test before they can vote or comment whether they've actually read the proposal. And while I think that's completely impractical and would never actually work in the real world, it's a really interesting concept of, if you want to discuss this, you have to prove that you at least took the time to understand what's being discussed. 
Yeah, so kind of on that point, you're kind of on the fence about coming back. Um, are there any changes you'd like to see implemented um, that would maybe tip you towards coming back or just changes in general to the process that you would recommend? So I think aside from the the normal things like clarifying what's meant in the existing RFCs, there's a lot of really ambiguous text in there. Um, a couple of things I'd like to see being changed are explicit rules around like discussion timelines and things like that. Right now it just says you have to, the discussion period's two weeks before you can open a vote, right? So does that mean I can propose it today, make major modifications over the next two weeks and then just go to vote? you'll go to vote within 10 minutes of making a major modification. People have done that. Um, people, yes. I was going to say. That's happened a lot in the last couple of weeks. Like, as it came up to the feature freeze, people started to... The feature freeze was, what, the 15th, so a few days ago. And um, Or if you've, if you've just listened to the newly released version of this podcast, probably about a month ago, because our editing timeline's a little slow. But people have been really pushing the rules or bending the rules or like flat out breaking the rules with a smile on their face um, all the way up and down the chain of, of, of con con contributors. And there's been things like, yeah, people have uh, an RFC out there for two weeks. It stays pretty much the same. And then right at the end, they make major changes and then push it to a vote. And people are voting yes without realizing there were major changes. Um, there's been um, somebody released an RFC and then it was, uh, Zeev was trying to, to get that into a vote like two days later, but you have to have a discussion period. So they, they tried skipping the discussion period because this RFC looked like an old version of an existing RFC, so that to them was some loophole where they didn't need to discuss it that long. So there's all these kind of weird quirks um, which just are really broken, and those need to be ironed out. I actually suggested a while ago, I did a like fixing the RFC process blog post, which I think was probably fairly half-assed, but it was about trying to take some of the FIG workflow and apply it to the RFC process. Because uh, whilst the FIG isn't always perfect and expedient and you know great at getting things done, uh, the the workflow and the, the kind of the, the the system I set up for how things go from uh, draft to review to accepted, things like that, I think are quite important. Do you think any of that stuff could be applied to the RFC process to make it better, like having a proper review status and you can only make certain small changes during review and things like that? I think we need to tone down the formality a hair. Um, there's a lot of resistance, especially by existing long-term contributors, against making too much process because that's legitimately roadblocks to contributors. Um, so I think the, the overall concept of making the proposal process a little bit more rigorous is good. I think going too far down that road could be very bad very quickly. So I think as long as we use a fine touch, that could be good. Yeah, I mean, with um, with the fig stuff, I think a few people thought it was just a pain in the ass, but um, literally with, with the workflow we have for our uh, PSRs, you can't get one done in less than a month. And realistically, it ends up taking like six months. Um, but the, the quickest you could get one through is, is a month. And the way that it basically works, we've discussed it before, but you kind of come up with the idea. You have to, someone has to vote on it, so you have to get... Um, anyone can come up with the idea, but you have to get like a core... Uh, a voting member to, to put their name on it and then you can kind of vote to get it accepted as an idea um, then once it's an idea you can work on really fleshing it out and then take it from draft to review to accepted um, and I think some of that stuff could, could it, it wouldn't be that much different from how RFCs are now right you have to have someone with uh, wiki karma to actually write the, the RFC or you can't get on there um, you have to have a two week discussion period and then you have uh, then you have a vote 
it would be interesting if in between the, okay, let's talk about it and the vote, you had a, a, a kind of a review period where you're like, right, this isn't going to change now, and you make sure that everyone can get a chance to look at it how it is with only small changes allowed instead of, I've just randomly changed everything and pushed it to a vote immediately, and that's done now. Um, yeah, so how do, you, how do you distinguish though, between small changes and no changes? You know, wouldn't that be yeah. future fruits? I, I think the way you do that is by simply saying, in the text, no non-trivial changes. And if someone says on list, hey, wait a minute, this is a non-trivial change, then you instantly say, okay, you know, if someone considers that a non-trivial change, block it. If it really is a non-trivial change, tabling it until later shouldn't be an issue. If it's if it's not and someone's trying to game the system, then someone raising the, their hand on the list and saying, hey, wait a minute, this is a problem change, shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, we found that on the fig. Like The trouble is, once they set up that workflow um, situation, everyone was trying to point out problems with it and say, oh, what if someone does this? What if someone does this? Well, if someone does this, I'm going to call them a prick. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple. Like, you, you can self-police that situation fairly well and just say, like, you really shouldn't be making non-trivial changes. And they're like, oh, I thought it was trivial. And then four people say, that really wasn't, that wasn't trivial at all. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll take it back out and we can change it later. It's, or we'll knock it back to draft then. You know, the, the, you can kind of, the human level is important because you can't completely uh, describe every action and every situation po uh, possible. But. There's one other point I'd like to make here, which is I think while the process that the FIG has could potentially partially be applied to internals, the problems that the FIG has are very different from the problems that internal has in the sense that FIG is a standards body that is trying to create standards for multiple projects to interact, whereas internals is a language. And while for the bigger um, RFCs, things like scalar type-ins, things like um, PHPNG and a couple of the other big things that happened, we do really need a formalized process. For probably 75 to 80% of the RFCs that come through, that's simply going to be big major barriers to, um, to contribution. Uh, Nikita at one point had said, because we were talking about the idea of um, you know, requiring a sponsor where you needed two, at least one internals dev, and if you're an internals dev, two internals dev to sponsor an RFC. So you needed someone other than the author to sponsor it who's, an, who's a dev. And basically his point was, you know, he makes non-controversial RFCs. He has not made a single RFC to date that has gotten any controversy. Why should he have to go through a significant process? And on one hand, fairness for everybody. On the other hand, is he wrong? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you mean there. I actually, uh, I got kind of bit by some of the fig voting stuff in the past myself, and I thought this is just ludicrous. Like, there was a problem. Um, I discussed it before, where like uh, code sniffer PSR two was different to what PSR two actually said. So I was like, right, we should just change P We should just change it. And like, no, no, we can't change it. We have to. Uh, we, we just can't change things. I'm like, fine, we should come up with errata. So I spent a month working on uh, creating this errata system and the bylaw for that, and then another two weeks waiting for that vote to pass, and then we finally got that through, and I had to wait another two weeks waiting for the PSR2 errata to be added to the meta document, and three months later, I'd managed to fix code sniffer um, indirectly by like clarifying the standard, and I was like, this is... Which prick set up this rule? Oh, wait, it was me. <laughs> but uh, some of these things help. There's actually a really interesting comment in IRC by Frozen Fire saying that barriers to contribution aren't necessarily bad. And I definitely agree with that concept. Um, 
And the key word there, though, is necessarily. A barrier to contribution, if it promotes the health of the entire community, is phenomenal. A barrier to contribution, though, can very well go overboard and basically just raise the bar for no other reason than self-serving reasons and therefore cause more problems than it solves. Yeah, it's definitely a balance because you also had the problem with internals of um, it's very kind of off-putting to newcomers. And especially if you raise that bar too high, you're never going to get newcomers. And that gives you new perspectives and new ideas. And, um, you know, it gets rid of that whole old guard, let's keep it like PHP 4 mentality that seems to prevail quite often. Yeah, exactly. We need to definitely flirt with that line of raising the barrier where it's truly justified, but not raising it too high to actually push more people away than we're already pushing away. Yeah. Speaking of pushing people away, um, how do you feel about the proposals to kind of let your karma expire? There were a few people that were saying there are about, uh, was it 1,800 people with, with voting karma that may have put in a couple of commits a decade ago but haven't really done shit all since. Now, over time, if, if we keep on getting another 100 every year or whatever, um, and these people aren't really doing anything, then we have all these people that have voting access that can just be like pulled in. Whenever there's a controversial vote, you can just go and tap this massive pool of like people that don't actually do shit but have voting rights and just get them to completely abolish a vote or, or knock it out just because they happen to have that vote. How do you feel about that stuff? I'm going to say the political answer and say that it's something we need to handle very, very carefully. Because on one hand, somebody who contributed a lot in the past but hasn't contributed anything in the past you know, five to ten years, it's not necessarily bad and they shouldn't necessarily have their karma pulled just because they haven't made a commit. Um, you know, I think it comes down to who do we want to vote and who do we want to have that ability that seems and, dangerous, though, if you're like trying to decide who you want to do. It's massively dangerous, yeah. um, but it's a double-edged sword. If you push them away, then you have to push away new people and raise a barrier to new people coming in. What if you did some um, combination of haven't committed and haven't voted in X? You know? So if you haven't voted in a year, why would you still have to There are other ways to contribute than just voting and committing. You know, there's a lot of ways to contribute, and especially if you look at some of the guys who maintain the web... They don't commit. They don't talk sure. on internals. They yeah. don't usually. Some of them don't really vote that often. Yet, should they ha not have a vote? Good point. Yeah. Uh, that that's where I think this the whole problem and the reason why I said such a political answer is, is there's so many of those fine line cases where trying to draw a line and say no, you, your opinion shouldn't count versus no, your opinion should becomes a really really dangerous thing to do. I did say there was a few kind of low-hanging fruits because the topic of um, of voting, uh, f fixing the, the the voting system in general, that topic has been going around a little bit on on internals. And Anthony actually started it off um, rather rather controversially mid vote, yeah, cheeky bastard. But um, yeah, there, there's been a few people trying to work out ways they could improve the voting system, and yeah, getting rid of the people that haven't done shit in a decade was one approach. And there are a few other ideas. I said there's a few low-hanging fruits we can do, and one of them would just be you can't vote on something that was initiated before you were a member. That seems like a really simple one that I don't think anyone's going to disagree with because we do that in the fig as well. And it meant that I, I joined up uh, the day after the vote for PSR1 and PSR2 started, so I didn't even get a chance to vote on that. And I was there, I was like, but no, but I hate Camel Case. I want Snake Case because I'm a Codenighter developer. And it made me really sad that I couldn't vote on that stuff. But um, I do think it's important because when you have 
with the scale of tight pins, vote. What was really nuts is that it was actually longer than two weeks. We had this like uh, you, you had this clause in there that was it will be finished in two weeks or like when the other one's finished, and then that other one was delayed and it went on for fucking ever. Um, and it just meant that there was so much time that the, actually whether it was going to pass or fail flip flopped a couple of times even after the two weeks. So depending on when you stopped it, it could have passed or failed, and that was nuts. So the idea that people can sign up, um, anyone with anyone with karma can give somebody else an account, and then those people can log in and vote. And those votes count whether they've done anything in the past or not. That's fucking terrifying because it just means that people can just, you know, let loads of people in that agree with them, and then ta-da! It's terrifying, but it's also empowering in that it lowers the barrier to entry to zero. Where if you want to contribute to a project, you can walk up and contribute out of the street and actually make a meaningful difference in the project. So it it is scary and it's ripe for abuse but it's also one of the most powerful things about the current system that we have, which is why I say it's such a political problem, because either way you're going to do it, you're going to restrict somebody who legitimately should be able to vote, or legitimately has a justification to vote. But uh, the rule about you can't vote if that vote's already started, you know, you're... Uh... I think I think that's an important one. So if, if a vote start, great. You should be able to vote on things. We we appreciate your documentation fix or whatever it is you've done. Um, and and somebody that's on the t on the internals, someone that has access, has given you access because they believe in you. Well done, you. Um, you can vote on the next thing that comes up. You're you saying that way you can't just recruit your friends, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let me play pedantic here. If you're saying you can't vote on anything after it started voting. Why not re rewind that a step and say why shouldn't you vote? You shouldn't be able to vote if you weren't there when it was announced for discussion, because you missed that whole discussion period. So why should you vote if you if you came in the day before voting? Why should your vote count if you missed the entire discussion period? Well, discussion period could go on for a really damn long time. There's no there's no like easy way to state when that started. It could have been on Twitter for a while. Um, I think because the votes are two weeks long. Um, well, you could say like, uh, the, the official start date on discussion period is when you announce it on the mailing list and whatever. Um, I think when there's a vote happening, two weeks is long enough for you to work out how you feel about something to be able to vote on it, and that's fair enough. But if the vote's already started, then you, it, the only reason that someone would sign up and then vote, I mean, they're interested in and they want to support it, but they're not. It, it just always feels like the wrong reason to do it. Jumping onto something and then voting just for that thing just seems kind of dangerous and, and odd. Uh, oh, I'm definitely not arguing that. Yeah. Uh, cool. We, we, we agreed on that. I'm really distracted because everyone's sending me photographs of turtles. Um, Sammy <laughs> K is, is telling his lady friend that his turtle is bigger than mine. And I said I didn't, I didn't believe it, but then he sent me a photograph of a whacking great turtle. This, this thing looks like a fucking dinosaur. And I'm terrified. I think we should uh, wrap this up before we regret it. What? Oh, wait. You, should, you should always wrap things up or you will definitely regret it. But um, it's a really very impressive turtle, Sammy. Uh, mine is only about two inches, smaller than average, but I do I do like it. It's fun. It's, um, and the girls seem to like it. I'm keeping my mouth shut on that one. Anywho, do we have one more question from the crowd? We actually got from questions. Well, we, we actually never covered the eight and where did we go from here. Oh, well, I must have accidentally crossed that one out. Um, so, Anthony, would you like to ask yourself a question? <laughs> so there was a question that was asked, um, what's next for types in general and PHP? Um, 
and actually we tabled a question earlier about float in numeric and things like that. Um, I think that's the way forward is going to be things like union types, whether we get them or not. So you can define a new type saying, I want something to be a string or a float. Or even better is I want array or array access and be able to type specifically towards what you're going to do inside the function um, as a union of the possible types. So I think that's definitely something, um, a way forward. I can't remember exactly what prompted this thought, but um, or prompted me to remember the type specifically, or PHP 8 specifically. Um, things like union types are definitely a strong way forward. Things like doing optimizations internally. I remember the thing, the thing that made you think about it was somebody asked if the numeric alias would be added to mean like integers or floats. Well, union types would allow you to define a numeric alias, and so that way you could take in whatever number and retain whatever position, posi precision. But there's a reason that I brought it up now. Um, something that you had said reminded me of it, and that a possible thing that we could do going forward. Um, one thing that people keep asking for, uh, method overloading or function overloading, which personally I think is absolutely nuts. I also hate it. I think it's such a bad, bad idea. It's always a bad, like, it never ends well in any marginally sized app. Especially when you can just have a different method. Um, I know it's kind of gross, and I've got into, like, really verbose method names now, and I'm not going to go full-blown Java and, and have, like, a hundred-line uh, method uh, function name. PHP is turning into Java! <laughs> I'm seriously going to make some t-shirts that says PHP is turning into Java. Mostly because I don't make man. You'll be rich. Um, but, yeah, you can just say, like, Respond, respond with array, and you can just have like more explicit names than what you're doing instead of just like making these ten different versions of the same function that hopefully are next to each other, but might be all over the bloody place in the file. And people don't necessarily order them properly. And there could be like you're looking at foo here, and then it's doing different things because there's another foo down there that has slightly different versions. And in a dynamic language where like you could have uh, you think you're sending it an integer, but it's actually a, like a numeric string. Um, and that makes it then call a different version of the of the function that could be a hundred lines down the page. It just sounds fucking terrible. I'm sure like method and function overloading in some languages are great and make sense, but in PHP, I think it would just be a really really good way of wasting half of my life debugging. I don't like it in any language really. Like it's it's always. I would be trying to be fast. So I remembered the concept from eight that I kind of wanted to talk about briefly. Um, what Zev had, try, or Zev had tried to do before with the coercive type hints was clean up the way type conversions are done in PHP to remove some of the, let me say them this way, the insane cases. Things like having a string seven dogs be able to pass for something expecting an integer. Legitimately, that's a really, really good thing. Um, I publicly called him out, and I stand by this 100%, for trying to kind of rush through those changes without excessive thought. I think something that's something that we should be doing for 8 is looking at cleaning up those conversions. And I've had a couple talks with a couple people around this. I think the way forward with that is we come up with a list of conversions we want to potentially clean up, talk with a couple hosts, and get them to implement maybe a patched version of PHP on some of their servers so that way we can gather some real-world data about how much code we're realistically going to break with these changes you know, do a lot of research to have a lot of people try this stuff out. Um, 
basically to get the idea of is this a good idea or is it legitimately something that way too many people are relying on um, and should we change that? Personally, I think we do need to clean them up, but I think we, we really need to do our homework first. It's, you know, when we have literally probably tens of billions, maybe hundreds of billions of lines of code out there that are some of, actually the majority of it is probably unmaintained, just changing behavior is probably not a really good idea without having a lot of information to back it up. Yeah, I mean, even... Uh... One good example of kind of changing behavior without a lot of information to back it up would be the um, strict argument count RFC. So there's an RFC floating around that I actually quite like um, myself, but it's a very controversial one, and that is um, if you pass in, if your function has said you're going to pass in two arguments and you pass in a third, it will just shout, oh, prick, why are you passing me a third? Now, Ruby does the same thing. If you pass in too many, it will error. Um, in PHP, at the moment, it lets you do it, and basi basically whether you think that's a good idea or not depends on how your brain works. Um, it's, it's either a bug or a feature, which is awesome. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there that kind of define an interface that's, that's got two arguments on it, and then they believe that once you pass in those two, then that interface is sat satisfied. So passing in a third isn't, isn't being disrespectful to the interface, and it should be allowed if your implementation will you know, uh, is looking for that third argument. Um, whereas I think it's broken. I think if you pass too many things into a function that only wants a certain number of things, then you fucked up. And that's that could be a problem with you're using a different version of the library. Maybe they removed an option because they, it, it was a bad thing to have or, or something. It just always seems like it's more likely to be a bug than a, than a feature, but apparently Doctrine love it and, and Zen did it once. So that's quite a controversial one. And, and people are... People are trying to find ways. The um, Mario, Marco, Marcus, the guy, the uh, the author of the RFC. Some M name. It's, it begins with M, uh, and I believe it's a guy. So that's that's probably easy to find him. Marcia. Excellent. Um, he was trying to work out a real world way of testing to see how much stuff this this change broke. Uh, so he thought, I will download WordPress and run the tests on my branch. And there are only twenty six warnings on WordPress. Now, if you want to find an example of not well, necessarily the best... WordPress core, not WordPress plus all of the plugins. Uh, well, yeah. Once you you can't really judge all of the plugins that are available for WordPress. Not all of the plugins, but like a standard number. Um, but I, I was saying that if even WordPress only had 26 warnings with this change, it's probably not going to break all that much stuff. Um, and also, if there are any warnings, then who gives a fuck? Like for the longest time, um, we, there was the change being made that like you're trying to access a non-static method statically. How dare you? And people were doing that all over the place. And that that change was made, and it would throw a warning or a notice or or a strict. I can't remember. Um, but everyone has that shit turned off, so it it didn't matter. The people that care about writing good good code will fix that immediately, and the people that don't care just hide it anyway. So I, it's one of those things that to me doesn't seem to hurt, but yeah, the reason we brought it up was it's all part of um, PHP. People seem to be interested in making it cleaner, into like throwing errors more quickly, throwing exceptions more quickly even, with the en uh, uh, engine exception situation. Throwing things quicker, more strictly, help, kind of holding your hand a little bit, but um, in, a, in a good way. And we do have that Tea Party movement of like, get off my stuff, I can do it myself. But, um, but I, I kind of like the way it's going, of like removing the old cruft, making things more consistent, 
um, the things like uniform very uh, uniform syntax and the AST and all of these various different things, fixing these old buggy, quirky, bullshit behaviors and just making them new and standardized and making it kind of error quicker. It's a really good so way to go. Th there's one point I want to make there where if you look at things like uniform variable syntax, um, the, the other one that you just mentioned, the PHP 4 constructors and a couple of those other ones, they're all syntax-related changes, but they're all very, very minor syntax-related changes where we could build a pr little tiny script, maybe a couple hundred lines of code, that can parse your code and say, here's going to be your problems, and you know what? I'm going to automatically fix it for you. So you have that class of error that is statically detectable where we can make any code 100% um, compatible with both 5 and, uh, and 7 at the same time statically. And I think that type of break is not dangerous. In fact, that type of break is trivial to deal with. Um, the type of break that I think is very, very dangerous is the one like with Zeke's coercive mode proposal where code that used to work randomly doesn't um, with the strict argument count where sometimes you may be able to tell ahead of time statically but you're not going to be able to in all cases thanks to things like call user func array etc um, where you can pass more functions uh, more arguments to a function than it expects those kind of changes I think are dangerous to make willy-nilly because they're almost impossible to detect except for at runtime so now you're saying unless you've got a really, really healthy set of tests, you're not going to be able to detect this stuff. Um, I mean, saying 26, um, 26 failures in WordPress is actually not bad. To me, that's like almost a worst-case scenario because WordPress itself, yeah, we like to sit down and call it bad code, and personally I'll be the first one to stand up and say from a security standpoint, I think it's horrible code. But it's proven itself to be fairly robust in the generic sense. Um, to say that that only through 26 warnings, to me, that's the class of the middle tier code, whereas things like all of the plugins that are written for WordPress and Drupal and etc., those are the ones I'm kind of afraid of because the quality there isn't controlled. The testing there is a lot less in general than the core frameworks. So, I don't know. I, I just think it's that second class of errors, those that aren't statically verifiable, are incredibly dangerous and need to be taken very, very carefully and with a well-thought-out plan. There's um, a comment from uh, Frozen, Fri uh, Frozen Fire, who is, uh, is a good friend of mine for his wonderful Reddit moderate moderating skills. What is, what's his um, real wife name, do you know? I, I don't know. I don't know. But, um, yeah, he's pointing out that a lot of this stuff can be done with static analysis. Now, I do agree to a point. Um, there's a lot of things... Uh, <laughs> Everyone, get your shots ready. In Go, um, no, I've been using a lot of um, a lot of other languages that I've been using. You use Ruby, and they have Rubocop, and you use Go, and they have um, Go Plus for for uh, Atom, and you have all these different tools that tell you really awesome things. There's um, uh, like just today, there was a, an error where I had essentially sprintf, and I put in a, f a few too many variables. Um, a few too many, like, here's a string, here's a string, here's a string, and the string composition stuff. And it said, actually, you've put four strings in, but you've only you've only actually passed in three arguments there. Um, and, and that kind of hand-holding is fucking brilliant. Um, the sort of people that need their hands held are people that don't really know what they're doing and need the help, or people, uh, so, like, absolute beginners, or people like myself, I'd like to think I'm not a beginner after writing PHP for 15 fucking years, but um, I, I flip between languages so much that the I forget things. Sometimes I try putting semicolons into Ruby and it's just dumb. I, I, I flip about all over the place, and um, while I really enjoy being a, a polyglot programmer, 
it, it can be a pain in the ass. And having your um, your IDE or your text editor or whatever help you out is great if you know enough to actually set those tools up. But if you're a PHP developer and you've just like you're just um, a lot of people that get into PHP are absolute beginners. They don't know shit. They've got Notepad or they've got Dreamweaver and that's all they've got. And they're sitting there trying to make a website and they're having all these fucking errors that could be caught if they knew enough about the situation to install these static analyzers and to install the plugins and to configure them properly and have the, the, the CLI version of PHP match the version they're running through MAMP or Vagrant. Like, there's so many of these hoops that you have to jump through and even getting scrutinizer to work, that's a really slow um, response time. You have to push it off to a server and get it back. Um, so to just say that static analysis is the solution and that the language shouldn't take care of these hand-holding things, I feel like for PHP is not necessarily the case. Um, we're not just trying to dumb the language down for beginner developers and making it worse for everyone else. We're trying to make it more robust, less broken, and require less third-party tools to get the same level of, of quality out of the system than, uh, than you would. And also, Ben, your advice on drinking more whiskey is fucking brilliant. Yeah, I, you're like I a real like person now. It's crazy. I, I really got back into the got back into the run of things, and it's because it's I, had, again. I had like half a bottle in between me forgetting what day it was. So that was nice. <laughs> but um, yeah, but uh, Ben, what do you think about that? What do you think about static analysis versus you know um, bake these handholding checks into the language? I think they both have a place. I think if you bake it in the language, though, you're going to use it more. You know, if you if you have to do static analysis, you're probably not going to use that consistently every time. I'm assuming this tweet is funny because you started laughing the second a tweet popped through. Sorry, uh, Frozen Fire just said, one of these days Phil Surgeon and I will actually uh, become good friends. I can already tell because we bother each other so much. Um, most of my good friends I've screamed at like a motherfucker on the internet several times. I think me and Anthony used to um, imagine punching each other at times, and, and now he's used to. So online, Phil is an asshole. He's you know someone that you love to hate. In person, he's actually kind of a really decent guy. You, you kind of realize that he just has no idea what he's talking about in person. You know. Yep, realize in person that he has no idea. No, he has no idea in general. He I just really, likes I to really make make know. it up. <laughs> he's just a really really good bullshit artist. Yeah. I mean, when I have time to write things, then I can actually Google stuff and work out what I'm talking about. But when I'm pretty I'm sure you have a ghostwriter, because reading your blog and talking to you are two very different experiences. <laughs> well, no, because when I write my blog, I'm really fucking drunk. And then earlier, I was sober, and then that was just terrible. On Monday, I went all the way down to middle of fucking nowhere, New Jersey, um, Ashbury Park, to go to Shore PHP. And, um, and there were like six Asbury, people. not Ashbury. Asbury. <laughs> um, it was two Dude, hours. It's an Americana fucking landmark, <laughs> right? It was two hours on a train. I don't give a fuck what it's called. Um, <laughs> I went all the way down there, and unfortunately, Code Rabbi uh, couldn't make it. So he sent an email saying, uh, um, oh, I was really sorry I couldn't make it. Sorry about all the trouble, blah, blah, blah. Forgot to mention that I was coming anyway, and the, and the meetup was still on. Um, so I got there, and there's like nine people there just staring intently at my face right next to me in the, in the front row. And I was sober as a judge, and it was the worst version of that talk I've ever given. The, the best version of that talk I ever gave was in Madrid, um, shit, Barcelona, sorry. Um, I was literally that drunk, I couldn't remember the name of the city, and I did the entire thing pulling drinks from a bar um, and just drinking tequila cider on stage. It wasn't very professional, but it was their idea, to be fair. Um, and I, I gave that talk absolutely smashed out of my tits, and it was the best version I've ever given. But then when, I, when I'm completely sober talking to a couple of guys in a room, I can't remember my own talk that I've given 20 times. So it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. 
fun fun story for everyone. Also, thanks for inviting me to your meetup. Uh, yes, um, I didn't mean to shit You basically just spent like 10 minutes describing why you're a functional alcoholic and you need alcohol to be a good person. Yeah, I think that's how it works. <laughs> the point is I can afford it, so, you know, it's fine. <laughs> alcohol, the cause of a solution to all of Phil's problems. I saw a great mug today and it was, um, I drink coffee until it's acceptable to drink wine. Or coffee helps get me through the day until it's acceptable to drink wine. But anywho, we are getting... Right, so we have one more question. We are way, way over time, but let's try to get this one more out of the way since we haven't had any more. All right, so Anthony, I'm, uh, I'm completely just buying time while I find this question. All right, why is there so much hate for the proposed in operator? And give us a little TLDR on what that is. So the in operator is basically shorthand for saying um, in in array uh, to see if a variable is inside of some other variable. Uh, why all the hate? It's one of those things that a function could do. So why should we bother having an operator in the language of a function can do it? Um, there's some specific details around exactly how it's implemented. Most of those have gone away as the proposal's been iterated. But, like, I mean, you can do things like um, in generator, whereas in, in, in array basically only works on arrays. The in operator works on a couple of different things, uh, works on strings as a substring replacement, etc. I don't know, it just feels kind of awkward in the sense that should it be an operator or why not make a function? One interesting thing I saw from Eli W. I forget his second name, but um, Whitney uh, e White. Yes, Eli White. White. Um, he mentioned on internals that um, the the cognitive load required to remember how to say something in something in PHP is quite harsh. Um, you're in your editor, and assume you don't have PHP Storm autocomplete shit set up because I write four different languages, and I can't be bothered to use a PHP specific thing. So you're in um, you're in there, and you're typing. Okay, I want to make sure that this string is in this uh, is in this array. Okay, so I need to do in array. Uh, you start off, you write the variable name like zebra. Okay, uh, zebra is in. Oh shit, I have to go back. In array, zebra. Wait, do I have to do the haystack or the needle first? Which way around is that? So you go to php.net and you look it up. And you're like, oh right, cool, I I found it. And then the whole process of just saying is this thing in this thing takes like five minutes and it's really fucking annoying. Um, and if you're on a plane, then you <laughs> fuck you. Uh, unless you've got Dash installed. So like the, the whole thing just seems quite complicated, and it's one of many many of um, PHP's kind of idiosyncrasies where if the standard library was was more consistent or even vaguely consistent at all, um, it wouldn't it wouldn't be quite such a problem. But because it's uh, str pos or you know is that needle haystack and then strings are strings are needle haystack and then arrays are the other way around, like the, all that shit just means that that whole section of bullshit could be completely replaced with just is this thing in this thing? Foo in bar, yes. Good. Carry on. Um, uh, yeah, and I think there's a fair case to be made there. I think, um, I don't know, operators are very, very sacred because you're adding new reserved words to the language, you're complicating the entire parsing structure, etc. And is there a good case to be made here? I think you made a decent case to it. I don't know if the RFC makes it makes that that good of a case for it, and I think that's where we really need to have the justification. Is the RFC should have 
all of the justification behind it, and it should have answers inside of it to the questions. Having me having to go back to the mailing list to figure out the justification or some of the real um, some of the problems with it or things that have already been discussed, I think, is a big problem. And that actually kind of brings up um, another issue with the RFC process in general is we have like these multiple classes of RFCs, some of which have phenomenal, um, you know, go really, really into detail, log the discussion, and try to present the proposal from every single possible side. And some are just a really quick one little paragraph saying what it is, one paragraph saying what it does, and some example code, and then a vote. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why this one's contentious, is because it's a relatively light RFC. Yeah, that's something I've noticed while uh, working on the anonymous classes RFC is that uh, the more you add to an RFC, um, the, the, the less bullshit you get. In the same way that all the PSRs now have a meta document, like there's many of many of the points as you can hit before people start to just make up their own assertions, uh, the better in general. And um, while there will be some people that don't read it at all, it's really nice when they say, "Oh, but it means you can do this," and then you like link them to the actual anchor tag of the the exact section where it says that you explicitly cannot do this. It it it, it feels good uh, to read the fucking manual. Um, but it also, yeah, like the, a well-written one is good. A great example of a really absolutely nailed RFC is the return type hints by uh, Levi Morrison. And that, that entire thing is like, yep. we've been talking about this for five years. <laughs> we know we need return type hints. Um, we've, we've, uh, we've avoided doing this. We're going to do this. We'll do that later. And that, and that can just fuck off. And it's just absolutely perfect. It took a very controversial thing and just went <laughs> straight through just because he kind of covered the points on the RFC. Um, so RFC will uh, write them better. Actually, that brings up a really interesting point. Um, that particular proposal we worked on in the Stack Overflow chat room, uh, room 11 on Stack Overflow, and that's actually something we've been doing for quite a while is working on a whole bunch of different proposals. And pretty much every single one that we worked on as a group has either passed or has passed pretty much close to unanimously with one big exception and one small exception. Um, the scalar type hints proposals, the two dual mode ones came through that room, and hey, it passed. It's in the engine. It's in there now. Um, and in operator one, you cheated the vote. Be quiet. Stop calling me a cheater. <laughs> um, but so one of the things we've been doing is we have a bunch of people, a bunch of people who know internals fairly well, know the politics, know the technology, etc. And we work on proposals to get an RFC that's actually reasonable, that goes into enough detail, that has that we work out all of the edge cases in advance before we actually even bring it to list and propose it. So by the time we actually propose it, it's a well thought out concept, and we justify it to list. We we have the discussion on list, but the proposal is not just a single person spitting their ideas out. It's maybe 15 people in total having their input into it. That's awesome. Um, I mean, the same. Me and me and Joe do the same thing. We tried it with the array of, and I wasn't quite ready for the RFC process, and I came came at some of the bullshit with a, a little bit of a heavy hand. But um, I've since tried again with uh, anonymous classes, and that's basically he writes the code, I write the RFC, I listen to feedback, I write more tests to show that certain things work in certain ways after people are concerned about them. Um, I I ask him questions if they're stuck, and 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 working on RFCs as a team, I think, has been really helpful for us because. He can just focus on writing a bit of code, smashing, smashing it up there in a couple of hours, 
and then he goes off and hangs out with his family or is sick or whatever it is that he's doing the rest of the time. Um, and then I can I can focus on arguing on the internal stuff and, and using my, my power of argument for good. Um, so yeah, definitely I think crowdsourcing RFCs in, in that way, like getting 15 smart people on the chat room to throw in advice is a great, great way. Yeah, to and if anyone here wants to come join the room and has an idea that they want to propose as a group or work together on stuff, come on into the room. We're always looking for new people. Yeah, there'll be, there'll be a link to the um, to the Stack Overflow chat PHP room in the in the show notes. And uh, on that note, <laughs> we uh, should we call it a day? I think we should. We're definitely past time. Right. Thank you for joining us again, Anthony. This has been one of our better episodes, I would say. We had more questions this time than ever before. So uh, I was gonna say, by the time we edit out all the parts where I spent ten minutes trying to work out what the fuck my point was, we should actually get down to a solid hour. Yeah. Or maybe 20 minutes, but... Who <laughs> <laughs> <I> invited you? <laughs> nice. So on that wonderfully polite note, me and, uh, me and Anthony are going to finish off this whiskey, and we'll see you folks again in, uh, in a week or two. Thank you All very right. much. Thanks. <laughs>